This is Guns and Butter. Iran's now on the front burner. The only thing that would really get the attention of the American people is if we attack Iran and it turns into a bloodbath for us. That is the only thing that would do it. And at that point, no matter how much money has been spread around Capitol Hill by APAC, no matter how much blackmail they have employed, no matter how much pressure they put on them, there will be an upsurge in public rage that will force Congress to do a very rapid reassessment for their own political survival. And that might be a game changer. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Alan Zabrowski. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 2. Alan Zabrowski is an author and consultant specializing in national and international security affairs. In 1988, he received the Superior Civilian Service Award after more than five years of service at the U.S. Army War College as director of its Strategic Studies Institute. Alan Zabrowski was a panelist on the Deep Truth Visionary Speak Out online video conference of June 10th, 2018, produced by No Lies Radio and DeepTruth.org. His presentation, The Impact of Zionist Influence in the U.S. Alan Zabrowski. A very good friend of mine named Mick Trainer, uh, otherwise Lieutenant General Bernard C. Trainer, United States Marine Corps, uh, retired. He died a couple of years ago. And I were having a, a chat once in Washington back in the late 80s. And he made a comment to me, he was still on active duty at the time. He made a comment to me that sometimes you have to lie to others in order to buy time to deal with a problem, but you should never lie to yourself. And I took his, his maxim to heart. And so I'm going to take it to heart today. The topic is the impact of Zionism in the U.S. and, of course, by extension in, in other Western countries. And the first thing I think that we need to understand is that the Zionists have won the battle for hearts and minds. They have won. Um, the rest of us are sort of like, like fleas attacking a herd of elephants. We can make them stumble occasionally. We can do them damage. We look for bright sides. And that doesn't mean we should stop fighting, but we do look for bright sides even when there aren't many bright sides out there, but they have won. And the evidence for that, both in absolute terms and relative to the position of Israel in the Middle East and the Zionist lobby in the United States are overwhelming. Uh, by any measure you want to use, Israel is militarily stronger now than it was 10 years ago. It has American bases in Israel, providing additional defense for it. There are more settlements with more settlers. The Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the West Bank are marginalized, and those in Gaza 
as, as Gillard said, are essentially in a concentration camp. Um, they are not completely hopeless, and the, many of them don't seem to give up, but their position is far worse than it was 10 years ago. Within the United States, their control of the U.S. government is as close to absolute as you can imagine. Uh, they control both houses of the Congress through the appointments process in the Senate. They have a dominant role in the executive branch. They have extended that influence down into state governments. I think it is now 21 or 22 have made it illegal to support the BDS movement, certainly to support disinvestment, boycotts and disinvestment. Uh, South Carolina has either just approved or is on the verge of approving uh, a state law making criticism of Israel illegal. The extent of that influence is, is enormous. And I think probably nothing made that clearer or should have made it clearer to any of us as when the U.S. Embassy was moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and the Israelis celebrated, if that's the right word, um, by killing about 60 Palestinians and wounding over 3,000 others. And the response of the White House, and I watched the, the press conference uh, where the Assistant Press Secretary made this announcement that the response of the White House, that Israel bore no blame for this, it was totally the fault of Hamas, and, quote, Israel had a right to defend itself, end quote. Um, how one talks about shooting unarmed children and an unarmed Palestinian nurse as, as self-defense is a little bit difficult for me to understand, but that is, that is the extent of the White House. It is the same in many other countries. Their control in Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand is far greater than it was 10 years ago. The only difference is that in those countries, it is still possible to find an occasional parliamentarian who will stand up and criticize Israel extensively. I don't believe any member of Congress, either party, criticized the White House for its blanket and unrestricted support of Israel on the day the embassy moved for its, it, the casualties it inflicted on the Palestinians. If that doesn't constitute winning, I don't know what does. They may have lost a soccer team and they may have lost a little bit on the cultural side and they're certainly embarrassed by BDS, but that doesn't, that doesn't weigh very heavily at all on the mechanics of power. And they have power. They have power in their own region and they have influence here. The only thing that they haven't done yet is been able to get us to attack Iran or get support elsewhere to attack Iran, but they're trying. They're trying very hard. And I expect they're not giving up trying to do that. Having said that, what, what I propose to do, now that I've made everyone feel good, is to look at what has happened and why and where we go now from here. The, the growth of Zionist influence in the United States essentially went through three phases. The first phase was from 1948 through 1956. And, you know, those of us who are, who are used to 
to APAC and the uh, laundry list of alphabet Jewish organizations out there exercising so much influence today, sometimes forget that in, in the late 1940s, right after World War II, they didn't have that influence. Truman's recognition of Israel uh, against the advice of virtually everyone in the State Department was based, uh, in his own words, on a simple calculus of domestic politics. He had made a comment to someone, there are hundreds of thousands of Jewish votes in the United States, most of them now for Democrats. There are no Arab votes in the United States for anyone. This costs me nothing. And he did that. But the principal supporters of Israel from 1948 on, actually into the 1960s, were Britain and France. They provided most of the hardware for them, most of the aircraft, most of the tanks. And the United States really didn't do much at all except having provided that recognition. APAC came into existence in, in 1951 as a fairly trivial and virtually irrelevant entity. And that continued into 1956 when Israel, along with Britain and France, attacked Egypt. And Eisenhower, who had not a Holocaust memorial to his name, nor a Holocaust Memorial Day to his name, nor ever went to the Wailing Wall and, uh, and reflected upon the inequities of life in, in Israel, uh, ordered all three of them out. And they got. And here is where there's an interesting insight from the 1980s on 1956. In the 1980s, I taught a course in comparative foreign policy, among other things, at Georgetown University. And I would have speakers from different countries in to talk to the class and give their view of their country's position in the world. And as in many cases, what they didn't talk about was often as intriguing as what they did and the, the twist that they would put on it. After the class, since I couldn't offer them an honorarium, I would take the speaker from the foreign embassy and two of my students, one male and one female, out to dinner. And the students fought viciously for the, the chance to go to dinner. And at one of those occasions, the, the diplomat was from the Israeli embassy. He was a young fellow, late 20s, early 30s immigrant to Israel from Romania, uh, fluent English. And we went off to a nice Indian restaurant for dinner. And in the process of the conversation, uh, one of the students asked him about the Israeli response to the U.S. position in, in 1956, because, you know, the student was coming from a period in the 1980s where he knew how influential Israel was, and he was just curious about that time. And this is what the, the Israeli diplomat told me. He said, in 1956, when Israel ordered us out, and he didn't mention or care about Britain and France, he said, us, Israel. When, when Eisenhower ordered us out, our diplomats went to Capitol Hill to see if we could get Congress to countermand that. And we had, and this is a direct quote, access to only two minor congressional offices, two minor congressional offices. 
1956. And we realized at that point that we had to do something very different. And I think 1956 should be seen as the starting point for the Israeli determination to do something different and not be put in that position again, the position they were in in 1956. Asked one of my students, well, how many congressional offices do you have access to today? And this was 1987, 88. I don't remember precisely. And he leaned back and smiled and he said, almost all of them. Almost all of them. 30 years from two minor offices to almost all of them. And the students stared at him and he said, oh, of course, those members of Congress only act in the American interest. And the students looked at each other. They didn't believe him. And of course, I knew better. But that was the, that was the interesting point for the, the shift in their view. 1956 until the 1970s was the growth of Israeli influence within the U.S. government and the beginning of their influence in other parts of the society. The media, information industry already had Hollywood. Uh, a mark of the change in 1956 war and the 1967 war, the Israelis fought basically still with British and French equipment. The aircraft, for example, which attacked the USS Liberty on June 8th, 1967, were French-built Mirage and Mystere fighters. In 1973, it was American equipment. They still had some of the British and French equipment, but American equipment, A4 Skyhawks, M46 and M48 tanks, those had come into being. That's, so that's the period of the growth of their influence. And from the 1970s until today, well, from the 1970s until today, they've gone from influence to dominance. You're listening to author and consultant Ellen Zabrowski on the impact of Zionist influence in the U.S. from the Deep Truth Visionary Speak Out online video conference produced by deeptruth.org and noliesradio.org. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why has this happened? Well, first of all, obviously, there is the organizations which the Israelis have used to further their interests and ambitions within the United States. Uh, there are analogs in Britain, in Canada, in Australia, in New Zealand, but I'm not conversing with all of those, the details of that, so I'll leave that for someone else. Uh, people occasionally ask if there is a Jewish lobby. There is. And it's called the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. It has its own website, Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations. The exact membership varies a bit. Uh, at this point, there are 50 uh, formal organizations and three adjuncts. These organizations run from the Anti-Defamation League, which started in 1913, to APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, which, as I mentioned, began in, in 1951. And the founder of it, by the way, was a, was a former Israeli foreign ministry official, incorporated in 1963 and 
began its growth at that point. The Christians United for Israel, which came into existence in the early 1990s, basically was pretty irrelevant and then got a shot in the arm and a boost in influence in about 2003, I believe, when John Hagee took it over. And it functions as the as the counterpart for APAC within basically evangelical Christians. Although it's interesting to note that as of this year, the director and the director of communications of this collection of televangelists and their partners are both Jewish and former APAC officials. And as part of their program, APAC, in addition to spawning Kufi later on, had gone through a, an extensive period in the 1960s and early 70s when it was building its influence of massaging a very large number of evangelical Protestant pastors, you know, with awards, all expense paid trips to Israel, things of this nature, uh, all intended to make them think well of, of Israel. And the idea was that where the pastors led, their flocks would follow. And largely, that's been the case. And so the formal organizations working have made a, a significant impact to the extent that APAC, for all practical purposes, not only has a dominant role in both houses of the Congress, it drafts legislation, presents it to a friendly member, and I'm not sure there are any hostile members anymore. Uh, even neutrality is frowned on. And that legislation will go forward. They got caught once on it. That was, uh, it was an APAC document that was actually put on the, on the table of some legislation. And I suspect one of the things, if, if you haven't seen it, uh, there was a Saturday Night Live spoof of the Chuck Hagel hearings before the Senate. When I, when I watched it myself, uh, I mean, the hearing, the original hearings, I thought that for a moment that, that Hegel was under consideration to be Minister of Defense of Israel, because that was the way the questioning was going. Uh, but the Saturday Night Live spoof, which pulled after its dress rehearsal and never appeared on the air, you know, basically dug a finger into that and pointed out the extreme pro-Israel bias of the members of that Senate committee. And it would be the same with any other committee. So this is the formal part. The informal is itself interesting. You know, Americans probably have access even before the internet to more factual information about what is happening in the world and in their own country than the people of most other countries in the world. But their opinions are largely formed by fiction, by movies, by television, by novels, the novels being a distant third these days. And Hollywood, right from the beginning, was largely a creation of Central and Eastern European and Russian Jews. There were very few people of influence who were not important in Hollywood. I mean, the extent, and, and many of them had been communists in their original countries. 
I think they became socialists over here. Uh, in fact, in the, I think it was 1951, the, the Hollywood producers and directors uh, had a motion in support of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. You know, this was the Soviet Union, you understand, of Joseph Stalin, who even if you bought uh, all of the nasty things that are said about Adolf Hitler, you know, made Hitler seem sort of like a very moderate, moderate man. And it was turned back by the very active lobbying of, of two people, John Ford, who was an Irish-American director, and John Wayne. But that was where the heart of the Hollywood community was. Yet from the beginning, the American people have been fed from the 1940s on a very steady diet of the dirty Arab and the brave Israeli. And they've had that now for about six decades. It's very hard to, to avoid the influence of that. That was paralleled by a comparable degree of influence in the New York television medias and studios. Uh, I, I, I'm one of these very rare Americans, and I don't, I don't watch television. Uh, but one Saturday morning, I was out of curiosity, and I decided to uh, watch ABC for four hours from eight until noon. Uh, I think I would probably rather go to the Gulag rather than do another four hours of that. But in that four hours on five shows, there were seven references to the Holocaust or Holocaust survivors or Nazis. And it's not something that's in your face. It's just mentioned in there. And this is the most effective form of political socialization. The overt form of political socialization is what communist regimes did, where everyone would march in the street waving banners and chanting slogans and the rest of it. And you had overt support, but when push came to shove, there was no real support at all. This type of indirect and subtle socialization is what takes hold. And that's why a very large majority of Americans today support what the U.S. government is doing in the Middle East with regard to Israel. The third thing that left the Israelis generally and APEC and, and the Zionists in America in particular do so well was that they, they found a pair of tools to use. Tools that they could use both to garner sympathy and support and to beat down opposition. And one of these is obviously the Holocaust. And they have been so successful at this that even people who know it's a hoax, who know in their heart that it's a hoax, people in the anti-Zionist movement will lower their heads and look aside and try and dodge the bullet of criticism of being a Holocaust denier. Now, it, it's obviously the case, and I think that everyone will understand this, as someone has said, and it wasn't me, uh, that anytime anyone wants to lock you up for questioning their story, it's 100% certain that the story is a lie. And of course, there, there are nasty little things like uh, the ICRC report on showing that fewer than 300,000 people died in all of the camps from all causes together, and that would include Jews, prisoners of war, communists, gays, whatever you're talking about. There's an interesting pair of videos that came out 
um, which I just saw recently. One was taken on April 27th, 1945 by the U.S. Army, and it shows the 20th Armored Division liberating Dachau. You have tanks and troops moving into the city, and you have the inmates being released. Well-fed inmates, healthy inmates, well-dressed inmates, good, good civilian clothes, energetic, happy to be freed, pounding the American soldiers on the back. Two days later, April 29th, there's a second film about the liberation of Dachau. No tanks, infantry moving around. This time you have the horror show of the emaciated survivors, the rest of it. Now, they both can't be true. My bet is the first one is. But we know this. What I don't know is when the Holocaust narrative became part of the public discussion. In my very good public high school in the late 1950s and in college in the early 60s, there was no mention of the Holocaust, not in texts, not in lectures. And this was very close to World War II. One would have thought that there would have been at least some mention of it. By the early 70s, it was everywhere in lectures and texts. So somewhere in that 10-year period, from the early 60s to the early 70s, uh, the Holocaust narrative became not merely embedded, but enshrined and a major tool to be used in which the existence of the Holocaust itself, or perhaps I should say the presumed existence of the Holocaust itself, was seen as both a reason to support Israel and a reason never to criticize it. Basically, it was its get-out-of-jail-free card, or if you wish, get-out-of-atrocity-free card. It could do basically what it want, but you had to remember what was done to us. And if you fail to understand what was done to us, you are as bad as the Nazis, the fascists, etc., etc. That was paralleled in the late 1970s by a series of articles in Commentary magazine which generally has some really good things on foreign affairs. And it talked about the new anti-Semitism. Now, the old anti-Semitism, of course, well, actually, there were, there were two forms of the old anti-Semitism. There was the classical anti-Semitism, uh, which was that there was nothing wrong with Jews as a people or Judaism as a religion, but an armed Jewish state was a pain in the behind. And the Romans dealt with that by sending Titus in to do his, his own form of urban renewal in Jerusalem. Uh, at the same time, the thriving Jewish communities existed in every major city in the Roman Empire. They basically destroyed the Jewish state of that time. The more commonly understood form of anti-Semitism is that of the Holy Inquisition, the Black Hundreds in Russia, and then going into the 20th century national socialist and fascist movements, which is basically a hatred of Jews as a people or Judaism as a religion or both in the extent that one makes a distinction between it. But the new anti-Semitism didn't bother with either of those things, either with an armed Jewish state or with Judaism as a religion or Jews as a people. The new anti-Semitism, as defined in the late 1970s, was any criticism of Israel, 
or of any Israeli foreign or domestic policy or action or any Israeli official or anyone elsewhere who supported Israel to criticize any of those things was anti-Semitic in terms of the new anti-Semitism. And that is the definition of anti-Semitism, which is current today. That is the definition of anti-Semitism, which is used, has been used for the last 45 years. And we are dealing with that, which is why organizations as I was going to say different, but they're really not that different as the Southern Poverty Law Center, which deals nothing with poverty and very little with law, but it's definitely a Southern Center, a very well-heeled Southern Senator, uh, and the Anti-Defamation League, and various Campus Watch and Jihad Watch. These are all Jewish organizations running around campuses, and friends of the IDF who collect money here to send them over to Israel as if they weren't getting enough money from the United States government in any case, how all of these organizations will beat anyone on the head as an anti-Semite for daring to criticize anything Israel does. In the old anti-Semitism, you could criticize Israel's shooting of Palestinian protesters on the border between Gaza and Israel, and you're not an anti-Semite. Today, you are an anti-Semite. And people, again, even in the anti-Zionist movement, duck their heads and dodge and try and avoid being tarred with that particular brush. You're listening to author and consultant Ellen Zabrowski on the impact of Zionist influence in the U.S. from the Deep Truth Visionary Speak Out online video conference produced by deeptruth.org and noliesradio.org. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And that brings me to the last point of why this has emerged, why Israel has gotten so much influence, why the Zionists have so much influence here. There has been an enormous disarray and disorganization in the anti-Zionist movement. Um, now, I, for one, support BDS. And I know it can embarrass the Israelis, otherwise they wouldn't worry about it but it can't really hurt them. I was in South Africa twice when I was in U.S. government service during apartheid in the late 1980s. And I saw the effect of boycott and disinvestment. And there were a dearth of American and British and Canadian and other industries and commercial enterprises in South Africa. You could look around on the on the billboards and you wouldn't see Fords being advertised. There's no Fords and Oldsmobiles being advertised. No one bothered with that. But that didn't matter to the South Africans in economic terms because the boycott and disinvestment from the West and through the UN had been offset by an enormous presence, an enormous amount of investment from China and South Korea and Japan, and Taiwan, and Singapore, and India. You know, there may not have been many Fords on the street in South Africa, but there were a lot of Hondas. 
And so boycott and disinvestment was a was sort of a two-edged sword with them. But what really hurt them, what really hurt South Africa were sanctions. And if there is anything that people in the anti-Zionist movement and supporters of BDS need to understand is that there will be no sanctions against Israel. There will be no sanctions against Israel. If the UN tries, if the UN tries, any attempt on, by the UN to impose sanction on Israel will at a minimum be vetoed by the United States and Britain. And perhaps France, I'm not sure. Any attempt by the United States government, and assuming, assuming that Trump had a revelation one morning that, oh my God, what have I done? And proposed sanctions. No one can seriously think that the Congress of the United States would vote sanctions on Israel. Not with the control that APEC has. So there will be no sanctions. And any damage that is done to Israeli finances by whatever boycotts and disinvestments occur will absolutely be offset by the United States government, the Canadian government, the British government, and the Australian government at an absolute minimum. So when you think of BDS, think of BD and what you can do with it because you're not going to have the S and try and figure out how you can use BD for it. And no one does that. I keep hearing the mantra, BDS, 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 BDS. And no one, no one apparently seems to understand that there's no S. You know, the second part of that, though, is the disorganization. You know, I once described the, the difference between the Zionists and the anti-Zionists in this way. The Zionists, I said, were like a thousand people standing in a circle inward at one point, And that point is Israel. And that is what they did. Anything and everything they did was intended to support Israel and to undercut anyone who opposed it. And the anti-Zionists were like a thousand people standing in a circle shooting outwards at a variety of different targets and topics, some of which were real, some of which were, were trivial, and some of which existed only in their imagination. Um, I'm going to say something that's going to make, make people unhappy and I'm people who have been my friends unhappy and I apologize for that up front, but it's real. And I think one of the, one of the worst cases of that is the, is the people who are, uh, continually focus on the USS Liberty incident. You know, it's a monomania in which they focus on the USS Liberty incident and Israeli culpability in it and the and the the treachery of the American government. Treachery is really too weak a word. I just can't use the word I want to use on the air. Um, in order to better understand the case of the USS Liberty. And there's a circularity there that that doesn't seem to go anywhere. It's, it's you know, when I was in, in college in the early 60s, if someone had come running up to me and said, I have absolute proof that the sinking of the, of the SS Lusitania in 1917 by the Germans was totally justified. It was carrying munitions from Canada and the United States to Britain. And the Germans were perfectly justified in doing it. 
we never should have gone into World War One. And I would have said, so? Am I going to undo World War One? Am I going to undo World War Two? They're all dead. And that's the same with the USS Liberty. The only reason to use the USS Liberty as an issue is as a springboard to something else, which is how, by the way, I've used it. I gave a presentation to a group of evangelical Christians, same denomination as Sarah Palin, by the way. And so you can imagine it was uh, a less than, than amicable environment. You know, they had American and Israeli flags alternating, circling around the church. And I talked about the USS Liberty incident as an example of what Israel had done and used that as a springboard into 9-11. And when, when I finished, I was told later that all but one of the 80-odd people there accepted the fact that the U.S. government explanation of 9-11 was false. And about half of them accepted Israeli complicity in it, at least complicity. So you can use the USS Liberty or any other incident or the Palestinian case or shooting Palestinians or the Rachel Corey case. You can use any of these, but you've got to link it to something else. And most of the people who use these these true atrocities don't link it to something else. They just use it to make people understand what happened. And that's not enough. Disorganization. That came to a head in my mind in what was a, a tipping point in 2011-2012. Now, I was, I was very active in 2009-2010, Kevin, on your show, among others, in 2011, because I thought there was, there was a real momentum building. Uh, the Israelis had really stepped on it. First of all, with Castle in 2008, 2009, which got my attention, was their, one, of their, one of their ravagings of Gaza. Uh, and what really got my attention was that they started the attack by, by slaughtering a class of Palestinian police cadets. Uh, I, I know how I would have felt about that. But Castle had, had excited a lot of unhappiness in Europe. Americans knew almost nothing about it. Why are we surprised? Uh, it culminated with the first flotilla to Gaza and the deaths on the Turkish ship, which had the Human Rights Council up in the air condemning Israel, had an enormous amount of condemnation from Israel all around the world, including in Europe. A lot of European countries that had previously either supported them or been neutral were in opposition to them. Uh, the convoys weren't going very far, but they were continuing to go with the overland convoys, the truck convoys. The General Assembly, the president of the General Assembly was Muammar Gaddafi of Libya. Interesting. The president of the Security Council at the time was Turkey. There was a lot of discussion on the UN and the non-aligned movement about the Uniting for Peace resolution. For those who don't know it, the United States came up with that idea in the early 1960s as a way of circumventing Soviet vetoes. And it was basically allowed the General Assembly to act as if it were the Security Council and to authorize the use of force, authorize sanctions, 
authorize embargoes and so forth. A lot of discussion out there. 2011 was going on. Um, the second flotilla was being organized. I had a couple of long discussions on the telephone with Ken O'Keefe, who was very active in the organization of the second flotilla. And I had talked to a couple of recently retired admirals who were friends of mine. Uh, you know, what would it take to get support? And the minimum that it would take to get support was to have the lead ship be American, an American registry, American flag, an American crew, and an American passenger list with as many veterans as possible. And it didn't mean that something would happen, but it meant something could happen. All of this was coming to a head in 2011, and it collapsed. It simply collapsed. Ken told me that the International Steering Committee refused to allow an American ship to take the lead, whether that was because they hated Americans, or at least America, uh, if they were so committed ideologically to a multinational exercise that they couldn't stand a national organization, or if they were on Israel's payroll. And since Israelis have told me that they have infiltrated every opposition organization out there, you know, any one of those three or all three of them may have been in play. A truck convoy which was heading to, to, Gaza at that time ended up sitting in a, in a dusty yard under the gaze of Egyptian riot police and basically doing nothing of consequence. The Memeline movement collapsed, collapsed in the sense of pushing the, the Uniting for Peace resolution. It just ended under extensive lobbying from the United States and Israel. Uh, I expect Israeli bribes did a great deal of work in the, in the third world. The presidency of the Security Council changed. And of course, we all know what happened to Libya and Muammar Gaddafi. And I think we will look back on 2011-2012 as a time in which a golden opportunity was lost and it was our last good opportunity. Because I don't believe the Israelis their lobby in the United States and in other key Western countries are ever going to let any of us get that close to being on the cutting edge of doing something really damaging to them. Uh, I should mention that I, I've never really understood the logic of sending unarmed defenseless ships in in a convoy or in scattered individual basis toward Israel or toward Gaza, you know, bleating happily that we're unarmed, we're defenseless, as if somehow that's going to persuade the Israelis to stand aside and let them through. Um, the only thing that matters to the Israelis is their own casualties. doesn't matter. They don't care how many they kill outside or what damage they do outside. And the only way that any of these ships would ever have done any good was to make a fight of it on the high seas, even if it was just with hunting rifles, you know. But they won't do it. They simply won't do it. But that was the end of our golden opportunity. You're listening to author and consultant Ellen Zabrowski on the impact of Zionist influence in the U.S. 
from the Deep Truth Visionary Speak Out online video conference produced by deeptruth.org and noliesradio.org. Today's show, Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 2. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And so right now, to go back to where, we, where I began, they've got the Congress, they've got the media in this country, they've got the high road, they've got the publishing houses, we've got Holocaust memorials at almost every crossroads in the in corner gas station in the United States, or we will have so shortly, and they've extended it to a number of other key countries. You know, and the idea is, where do we go from here? Well, we can continue to do as we've done in the past, and that really hasn't been successful. Uh, you know, we might cost them uh, a concert or a soccer game, but that really doesn't matter very much in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't matter very much in the balance of power. And I, I, I sort of think the Israelis will get over a lost soccer game as long as they keep getting a few billion more dollars from the United States. Um, we can push BDS. With no sanctions, that's not going to do anything. Uh, we can wring our hands and watch as an increasing number of state governments in the United States make boycott and disinvestment illegal and make criticism of Israel illegal. And I'm just waiting to see how long it's going to take them for them to criminalize Holocaust denial here as it has been in so many European countries, but it's coming. It is absolutely coming. Uh, I wish I had some, some bright ideas that I could finish on a, on a note and say, and I have a six point strategy to deal with this. I don't have it. Uh, there are a lot of people out there who are brighter and more experienced than me. And a reason for my pathology today was to put something on the record so that perhaps these brighter and more experienced people will get some ideas if they understand exactly what's happened and the details with which it has happened. Um, I can tell you this much. If there is anything that can affect how people think about this and what might happen, there are two things. One, and that's that's 9-11, but not the way that I dealt with it originally. I focused on the World Trade Center 7, in fact, on the World Trade Center generally, because they were the most visible and most dramatic, and I was wrong. Because even if people accept the fact that the government case on, on the World Trade Center, on 9-11 generally, and on the World Trade Center in particular, is a lie. There isn't any particular way one can organize the public to do anything about it. Not in a practical way, not the way our political system is structured. The attack on the Pentagon is different. That is so obviously, blatantly wrong in terms of the government explanation of it. There are real-time TV clips from an hour after whatever happened at the Pentagon, in which police officers and correspondents are saying that they, there's no airplane wreckage anywhere. 
that they don't see any sign of an airplane wreckage, that there was no wreckage that they can't pick up in, in the palm of their hand. That's small. So obviously it wasn't a plane. Obviously it wasn't a plane. And if anyone could really persuade enough of the American military that they, they were the target of something other than a handful of Arab terrorists who hijacked a plane, uh, forget the fact that the pilot couldn't even fly a single engine propeller driven Cessna, but that that didn't happen. They do have the organization and the resources to do something. Offsetting that is the fact that for more than more than 30 years, the, the senior officers in the American military have been brought up knowing that there are things they do not discuss. There are places they do not go. Uh, I doubt if there is a single senior member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff today who is aware of the USS Liberty incident. I know it's not taught at Annapolis. It's not taught at West Point. I haven't checked at Colorado Springs for the Air Force. And they understand. I mean, they, they, they're very politically savvy these days, much so than in, than in my time in the 1960s. And they understand watching the Senate Armed Services Committee and listening to the comments on it. And if they needed anything else, replay a, a video of Chuck Hagel's nomination confirmation hearing, and they'll know where they aren't supposed to go. So if you're going to reach them in the military, it will be colonels and down. The second thing, back in, in 2007, Wes Clark, General Wesley Clark, retired. Uh, former U.S. Supreme Allied Commander in Europe. I knew him when he was a colonel, by the way, working the Pentagon. He gave an interview. He had he'd retired from the Army. He gave an interview, and he said that when he was in the Pentagon, a couple of weeks after 9-11, another general uh, who had worked with him in, in Europe motioned him into his office and said, you've, you've got to come in. You've got to come in and listen to me and hear this. And Wes went into the office and sat down. Now, Wes was still on active duty at the time. He was Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, four-star general. And the other general said to him, we're going to war with Iraq. This was in 2001. The attack on Afghanistan was just beginning. And Clark asked him, why? Have we linked Iraq to 9-11? He said, no. And so Clark asked him, well, why are we going to do it? And the other general said, I don't know. But the decision's been made upstairs, meaning Rumsfeld, Secretary of Defense, Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy Doug Fife. I don't know Rumsfeld. I've had a couple of dealings with Wolfowitz. I knew Fife fairly well in Philadelphia and worked with him in the Pentagon during the Reagan years uh, as an outside contractor. And Clark continued the discussion for a while and went away. And he told the interviewer that he came back a few weeks later. And remember, the interview was in 2007. He came back a few weeks later, and that same general was there. And he said, you got to come into my office. And so Clark goes in and sits down. And 
the general hands him a piece of paper. And he said, this just came down from upstairs, you know, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, and, and Fife. And he said, we're going to overthrow seven countries in five years. And Clark said, I was going to say, what? Why? He said, I don't know why, but it's been decided. We're going to overthrow seven countries in five years. Now, the only thing that threw off the timeline of five years was the unexpected resilience and strength of the Iraqi resistance. But of those seven countries, the only one not yet attacked is Iran. The rest are all in ruins, including Syria and Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and Somalia and Yemen. All of them are in ruins. And Iran's now on the front burner. The only thing that would really get the attention of the American people is if we attack Iran and it turns into a bloodbath for us. That is the only thing that would do it. And at that point, no matter how much money has been spread around Capitol Hill by APAC, no matter how much blackmail they have employed, no matter how much pressure they put on them, there will be an upsurge in public rage that will force Congress to do a very rapid reassessment for their own political survival. And that might be a game changer. Other than that, other than those two things, a miraculous conversion on the part of enough senior Pentagon officers to make them recognize what happened to the Pentagon and therefore by extension at 9-11 and that the whole war on, on terror is a, is a charade, a bloody charade, but still a charade, or a bloody setback for the United States and an attack on Iran. The only thing to which we have to look forward to is eventual dominance sometime after 2050 of the Asian powers, of China, Japan, and others. Because there isn't a very large Jewish lobby presence in any one of those places. So this is not a very optimistic assessment, but I think, you know, keeping back with, with Mick Trainer and, and keeping faith with my friend, um, one, of the, one of the very few general officers I have both liked and, and truly respected, truly respected, um, we have to be honest with ourselves. And the glass is, is not half full. It's not half empty. They're just dregs in the bottom of the glass. And part of it is because of a deliberate, deliberate effort on the part of the organized Jewish lobby within the United States. Now, I don't know if there was a, there was a strategy developed uh, or if it was simply a degree of consensus, you know, that there were a lot of people and organizations who were all committed to Israel and they all did their part in their particular bailiwicks. But if there was a strategy, I'd like to meet the, meet the person who devised it because it combined the combination of focus on the Schwerpunkt point of decision of Clausewitz with the subtlety and indirect approach of, of Sun Tzu. It was, it was truly masterful, truly masterful in every sense of the term. Um, 
but a lot of it is our own fault. We have not organized. We have not set up an equivalent to APAC. We have, we have essentially functioned in a disorganized, disjointed, unfocused way. And we have bought their narrative on the Holocaust and anti-Semitism to the point that we will go to extreme lengths to avoid being tarred with that particular brush. We have to face up to it. We have to confront them. We have to fight them on their preferred grounds because if, if we give them the high ground of the Holocaust and, and the new anti-Semitism unchallenged, they have won forever. been listening to author and consultant specializing in national and international security affairs, Ellen Zabrowski, on the impact of Zionist influence in the U.S. from the Deep Truth Visionaries Speak Out online video conference produced by deeptruth.org and noliesradio.org. Today's show has been Zionism, Deconstructing the Power Paradigm, Part 2. Alan Zbrowski is a Marine Corps veteran who served two years in Vietnam and is a 1986 graduate of the U.S. Army War College. His teaching and research appointments have included the United States Military Academy, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, Middlebury College, and Catholic University. While in government service, he held concurrent adjunct professorships at Georgetown University and the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS. To access in-depth background information on panelists in this series, resources referenced by speakers, and speakers' own links, visit deeptruth.org. That's deeptruth.org. To view the archived video stream of the online conference, visit noliesradio.org. That's noliesradio.org. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Hey yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, Universally, we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with this side yourself for peace.